Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. And we are pleased to have uh, with us fresh off of a victory in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California, our colleague, uh, Dr. Greg Dolan, uh, Senior Litigation Counsel here at, uh, at NCLA. And uh, Greg, we are uh, delighted to have you on the, on the show to talk about Hogue v. Newsom. This is the case where NCLA represents uh, five doctors in California suing uh, Governor Newsom and the, the Medical Board of California and other relevant bureaucrats out there uh, over uh, Assembly Bill 2098. This is the bill that uh, would allow the Medical Board of California to discipline physicians who disseminated uh, information regarding COVID-19 that departs from the quote-unquote contemporary scientific consensus. So this, this case was argued uh, this past Monday, and then the decision came out just just a few days, uh, just a couple of days later, I guess, really. Uh, so tell us, uh, this was Senior Judge William Shubb of the uh, Eastern District of California in Sacramento. Uh, tell us what the decision held and why it's, uh, why it's important. Uh, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's uh, nice to be back here. Uh, so as you said, we've challenged this uh, statute that went into effect January 1st. Um, the statute makes it unlawful, makes it un- unprofessional conduct, subject to potential loss of license for physicians to disseminate misinformation, which the statute defines as false information contrary to contemporary scientific consensus. On COVID. On COVID. On COVID and COVID only. Um, during the argument, the judge actually asked the state attorneys several times to give them an example of what's kind of inbounds and what's out of bounds, what is misinformation and what is not. And all the state could say is that, well, it's fact dependent on any given case. We can tell you absolutely nothing beyond the fact that saying, if a doctor says that given your prior history of anaphylactic shock, you might die from this, that's inbounds. If doctor says vaccines have microchips, that's out of bounds. But everything in between, they said, we just don't know. And the judge was very concerned about it, and the opinion ultimately showed it, that he said the statute is so vague, nobody knows what contemporary scientific consensus is. Nobody knows how contemporary it has to be last month, last year, two years ago. Nobody knows what consensus is. He specifically said, does it mean we as doctors or scientists or, or government officials or some sort of combination thereof? Only in California, only in the U.S., international, et cetera, et cetera. He actually has an interesting, very long footnote saying, takes up almost an entire page. Say in some courts have called consensus what the American Medical Association has said. Some courts have called consensus what the governors of various states have said. Some courts have cited international medical bodies. So he says this term has no accepted meaning. And that makes it very difficult, of course, for physicians to know what they can and can't tell their patients. Yeah, absolutely. And and there were really more than one constitutional problem uh, with this law asserted by NCLA. There were the First Amendment problems, including the fact that this was 
clearly viewpoint uh, or it wasn't viewpoint neutral. Uh, this uh, you were allowed to say things that that tow the government line on COVID, but you couldn't say things that, that didn't tow the government line. Well, that that's a First Amendment problem right there. Uh, but the judge didn't reach that issue in particular. He really focused on this vagueness issue uh, that you were just uh, talking about. And and I guess that's would you characterize that, Greg? Is that both a First Amendment and a Fourteenth Amendment due process issue? I think it's a little hard to parse that from the from the decision. I think I would agree with that. I think there's both a First Amendment issue and a Fourteenth Amendment issue. The judge at oral argument, um, which was done by our uh, very able uh, counsel, uh, Janine Yunes. Yes, who's uh, on vacation. She's on vacation. Resting, that's why she's not here. Well, des- well deserved <laughs> vacation in California. Uh, but so the judge was actually asked, uh, he kind of, he tried to push her. He said, well, you say it's only going to be used against people who like poo-poo COVID vaccine. But what if actually somebody wants to be, uh, be, be, be even more pro-vaccine than the government? Uh, couldn't the law be used after that? And Janine actually answered quite correctly. She said, it doesn't matter. Whenever you say any deviation of government line, whether you're more pro-vaccine or more anti-vaccine or more skeptical or more or less skeptical, that is a still viewpoint discrimination. It's still a problem. And so the judge took, I think, uh, at least on the bench, took it to heart that that's true. Um, ultimately, he decided it's not necessary to reach that viewpoint discrimination issue because it does have some additional nuances. And so he rested his opinion on vagueness. But I don't think that means he doesn't buy our argument about viewpoint discrimination or uh, content uh, regulation. No, it just means that he's being a good judge and only reaching what he has to reach in order to render the decision. Correct. Now, there was another decision. Uh, I'll, I'll just add. Sure. Shub is a very old judge. He's been there a long time. He's been reversed by the Ninth Circuit. He's been upheld by the Ninth Circuit. And that's the other thing I think is on his mind. I'm going to do right down the line what will be affirmed. Yeah, that, that could very well be. And that's that plays into what I was getting ready to say, which is there was another decision uh, previous to this in another district court uh, in California. Was that in the central district of, it of was, California? It wasn't a central district, although I always get confused which one is which. It's weird to think of Los Angeles as central in California, <laughs> but it wasn't a central district in Los Angeles and uh, by Judge Slaughter, which went the other way. On this same vagueness issue? On the same vagueness issue. Uh, Actually, that opinion both rejected both vagueness and First Amendment challenges. Um, judge uh, Judge Shub, our judge, uh, did reference that opinion, and he said that, of course, he's not bound by it because they're both district courts on the same level. One is not higher than the other, but also he called it unpersuasive, and I think correctly so. Um, Sometimes it's good to have an older judge who isn't, uh, you know... Isn't afraid to. I, I must say, his own opinion. Judge Shub was eighty-four years old. I want to be as as lucid and clear and amusing at forty-six as he's at eighty-four. He's <laughs> he was very good. He read all the briefs. He read all the amicus briefs. He was uh, really on top of both the scientific arguments and and the history of COVID evolution. At one point, he actually said, "What is when we're talking about scientific consensus? He's like, what is consensus? He's like, I remember at the beginning we were told." not to use any masks. Then he said, we were told to use two masks. And both of those statements came from the same person. <laughs> so how are we to know what scientific consensus? So he was really on top of the, not just legal arguments, but actually the history of this litigation, the history of what led to the enactment of this bill. And, and I want to take a, a minute to recognize our clients, uh, doctors Hogue, Duracetti, Cariotti, Mazalewski, and Katibi. 
uh, because it, if not for them stepping forward to uh, agree to, to sue Governor Newsom and, and these other uh, defendants, NCLA wouldn't have been able to, to bring this case. And that takes a lot of courage because most, or if not all of them, were attacked on social media. Uh, other doctors said, like, we can't wait for this bill to go into effect to refer you to the board to get your license yanked. Um, oh, they wrote to them. They oh, sent they wrote, emails. They sent, they sent emails. They, it was just a complete vilification campaign. And the state of California, instead of just saying, okay, you can say whatever you want on Twitter, but we let doctors say whatever uh, they want to their patients as long as it's backed up by their own understanding of science. Uh, just got on board and said, yes, we are going to try to yank your license away. One of the things that that was very persuasive to me when we were thinking about taking uh, this case is the fact that because uh, I come from a, a, a medical family and, and you know, I. Uh, when I think about the doctor patient relationship and the fact that people need to be able to trust their doctor, they don't want to think that their doctor is spewing a line from the government. They want to think that a doctor is giving his or her advice based on his or her medical training, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that was part of the problem with uh, the state's argument. The state said, well, it's okay to tell somebody if you had prior anaphylactic reaction, maybe vaccine is not good, is good for you because you run another risk. What the state was missing, though, is that every medical decision, every advice that doctor gets is a cost-benefit analysis. Um, doctor, you know, somebody can say, you know, should I get you know, chemotherapy for cancer. And the doctor can say, well, there's cost and benefit, right? You might cure cancer, but you may not live that much longer and the quality of life is going to be poorer. And some people will say, I still want the treatment. Some people say, you know, I would rather live whatever time is remaining for me, you know, with higher quality of life. There's not necessarily a right answer. And this, but the state thinks that there is one, that there's for everyone, except perhaps people who will die, there's the right cost benefit analysis. And there's just isn't. Sure. One of the issues I, in this, I think we should mention you use doctor, but he's not like a doctor of education. No, he no, no, he's not, school. this isn't Dr. Jill Biden. This yeah, is, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, Greg, Greg's a, Greg's an MD. Uh, so it's great to great to have uh, his medical insight as we're working on cases, uh, cases like this. It was great to have you uh, out there. Uh, uh, as you said, our colleague Janine Yunus uh, argued the case, but you've been the, the second attorney on this on this case uh, all along and we're out there. Uh, in California uh, as well. Uh, another issue in this case was standing, uh, that um, the question is, no one has prosecuted our clients yet. So why, why did they have standing to, to, bring this, uh, to bring this case? So, well, it's not a surprise that nobody has prosecuted our client. Uh, we, in fact, filed this case, I don't remember the exact date, but either late November, early December. And we asked for a very short hearing date. We tried to get a hearing on preliminary injunction in mid-December or the law went into effect on January 1st. For a variety of reasons, some of the judge unavailability, some of our unavailability, some because uh, the state wanted additional time to respond. It got pushed by about a month, and so we only argued it on, on Monday. So we wanted to do it uh, right before Christmas, we argued it on Monday. So, But it's, the law has been in effect for only three weeks, so there, it's not a surprise that nobody has been prosecuted. Although, of course, we don't know. For all we know, on January 2nd, there's, the board has been flooded with complaints about our doctors. Until it's published, we don't know. Uh, and so the reason they had standing is because there were real threats. When the law was being considered, everybody was saying that, look, just wait till we actually enact it. And you know, it, was a, it was a real threat. There was a real worry as to what they can and can't say to their patients. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being with us uh, on this, Greg. And thanks to, to Judge Shubb for doing 
the right thing here in granting the preliminary injunction. Uh, presumably, the state of California will, will appeal this to the Ninth Circuit, so we'll have to see what happens. We'll keep you informed here on Administrative Clinic about what happens uh, in Hope Welcome back to Administrative Static, and uh, I am joined by uh, our colleague, Sheng Li, who uh, helped write an amicus brief in the case of State of West Virginia versus the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Uh, we sometimes call it uh, West Virginia v. Yellen because uh, uh, she, was, she was tasked with, uh, with uh, uh, trying to save this unconstitutional uh, section of a bill. And uh, we just got a decision from the 11th Circuit and uh, the states that sued the government to say that the uh, part of the uh, COVID relief bill, that they, uh, if they took it, they couldn't cut taxes. I'm, I'm really shortening it up, but that's kind of it. That, that, that uh, was unconstitutional because uh, the spending power didn't let them commandeer the states. Now, I am just giving you that thumbnail and... Uh, Mr. Lee here, Sheng, you have to uh, correct me if I've if I've really blown it. But tell tell us what why did we put an amicus in this brief, and and do you think it helped? Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, I think our amicus really helped. And uh, uh, just to give a, a, a listen to a bit of background, so in the beginning of 2021, Congress passed uh, a COVID relief bill about $2 trillion of that amount, about $200 billion, went to state governments. It was a, a kind of an offer they couldn't refuse. It was a lot of money. And, but they, had to, they all had to agree to a condition if they took this money. And the condition was, if you take this money, you cannot, and I'm going to quote here, you may not directly or indirectly offset a reduction in the tax revenue of such states resulting from a change in law, regulation, or administrative interpretation. So the question is, what is a direct or indirect offset of a reduction in tax revenue. Uh, and and uh, the, the, the strong interpretation of this is you can't cut your taxes. It's not just you can't use the federal money to pay for a reduction in taxes, say, in, in your education funding in some way where you, 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 you know, reduce your tax and reduce federal education. But because money is fungible, uh, any amount of reduction in spending or taxing anywhere can be made up for by the federal money. And so that's the interpretation that's, that's uh, been offered on this. It basically says you can't. Uh, no state who takes this money can cut their taxes. So what and, happens? And, and, a lot and of states. And Sheng, let me just interrupt you for a second. Uh, for a lot of states, sometimes some states have very high um, property taxes. Some have no uh, no um, income taxes. Some have high sales taxes. You know, there's a whole mix of taxes. And if you felt that any of your taxes were out of whack. COVID or no COVID, and you wanted to fix that, you know, arguably, this could stop you from fixing an imbalance in your tax structure that you've been arguing about for years. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so a lot of states sued uh, in a lot of different courts, actually. 
And many courts have come out with decisions here and there, some saying the states didn't have standing because they didn't have a, uh, you know, a concrete tax reduction plan that would violate this rule. Others have found kind of split the baby. Uh, but the 11th Circuit came out with, with uh, what we believe to be the, the strongest repudiation of this, of this law. And uh, uh, first, you know, on, on the standing problem, a lot of courts were divided on this. For example, in, in uh, the 8th Circuit said Missouri didn't have standing uh, because Missouri was challenging just the strongest interpretation of the regulation, of the, of the statute, basically saying, Missouri was saying, are you telling me I can't cut taxes? That's clearly unconstitutional. And the Eighth Circuit said, and, oh, sorry, and then Treasury said, well, that's not our interpretation of the, uh, of the statute. We're going to interpret that narrower, narrow, more narrowly. And then the Eighth Circuit threw that out. But of course, when Treasury said, we're going to interpret that more narrowly, I don't know how you can interpret that more narrowly. What does it mean to indirectly offset a reduction in net tax revenue? And that's the, the issue the Eleventh Circuit took up. And, and there, and the Eleventh Circuit- Shang, as we oh. always talk about all of these deference these deference ideas, if the Treasury now says we don't interpret that way, and then some court upholds it, they could change their mind tomorrow and under oh, brand yeah. X, they get deference <laughs> and it wouldn't matter, right? They would, they would say either way, exactly. Um, and, and so the, what the 11th Circuit said, well, that's, that's not enough for us, uh, because uh, one, the injury that, that the 11th Circuit seized on is the fact that the, the uh, interpretation of whatever an indirect offset is, is just ambiguous. It's, it's not ascertainable. And the 11th Circuit said the states, when they agree to a federal spending condition, uh, they have a right to agree to an ascertainable condition. And they analogize this to a contract. Like if you and I sign into a, uh, you know, an employment contract and you said, yeah, you know, come in to work for me, I'll pay you something. Uh, I have a right to know, well, what exactly are you paying me uh, on an hourly or monthly or whatever basis? And, and the uh, other and thing is, Sheng, right there, they also said that they found the Ninth Circuit's uh, ruling on this very persuasive. And I was like, boy, you don't see that every day. Yeah, precisely. So what happened in the Ninth Circuit, Arizona sued, got bounced on standing in the district court, went to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit said, wait a second, Arizona has a right to know what it's signing up to when it took in this federal money. And, uh, and, and you can't, you know, what does it mean to indirectly offset? If indirectly offset doesn't mean you can't cut taxes, you know, period, then we don't know what it means. So, uh, so, so there, the uh, the Eleventh Circuit said that uh, that uh, was enough for standing for uh, for the state, which is West Virginia and about twelve other states. Notably, the Eleventh Circuit's decision on standing diverged from from uh, the Sixth Circuit uh, decision on standing. The Sixth Circuit had there were three states in the Sixth Circuit. The Sixth Circuit also said Tennessee had standing, but Ohio and Kentucky did not because Ohio and Kentucky didn't specifically say, you know, say they, they intend to violate the Treasury regulation. They merely said they intend to violate the statute. And, uh, and the 11th Circuit uh, said, well, wait a second, Our, an agency can't cure an ambiguity in the statute by, uh, by, by issuing a regulation. And that's the argument that NCOA really, you know, strongly advanced before the 11th Circuit. The state's uh, brief had about a paragraph on that. None of the other amicus had, a, had a, a, an argument on, uh, on this point. Uh, but NCOA uh, spent, you know, many, many pages on it. And, and, you know, and the, the idea here... No, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. The idea here is the Treasury said, wait, well, we understand maybe this indirect offset language in the statute, you know, it's hard to understand what it means, but Treasury comes to the rescue. We wrote a regulation. 
uh, uh, Treasury wrote a regulation that, that more, more narrowly defines what an indirect offset is and when, when, when an indirect offset occurs such that Treasury can come and recoup funds from the, from the state. Um, you know, we think those regulations weren't very good to begin with and weren't very clear, but, but more to the point, um, if the statute is, you know, the, the, the rule is the statute has to be clear so that the states know what they're agreeing to. But if the statute is unclear, you know, if you, if you can't figure out what the statute is, what indirect offset is, then for Treasury to come in and, and impose its own condition, then that condition isn't the condition that Congress is imposing because Congress didn't say anything clearly. That's a condition that Treasury is conjuring out of thin air, really. And, uh, and the court seized on that and said uh, an agency can't cure a standardless, uh, you know, statutory condition by adopting its own limited construction. Because also that would be Treasury imposing a deal on the states that the states didn't accept. And Treasury certainly doesn't have that power. I don't think, I don't think, Justice, there is nobody, even a strong administrative state advocate that I think would say that the agency has the independent power to do that. So, I mean, that's a non-starter, I, I really think. And, and the, other, the other thing here that I think we will be using again and again on standing, it, it's always been the law, but I thought they were very clear on it, is you could sue with a bunch of people, and if one of them has standing, everybody goes through and we decide the issue, which I really loved. That's right. And here, here was West Virginia led the way, but there was 12 other states, and the court said, well, you know, Kansas has standing under this theory, and North Carolina has it under that, and that's enough. We don't really have to look past that, um, you know, anything else, because all the states are otherwise in a similar, uh, similar situation. Uh, and, and back to this idea that, a, that an agent can't cure an ambiguity, uh, certainly, this, you know, the court here, you know, decided the case that was about a spending clause condition imposed on states that was ambiguous. But I, you know, to, to the court's point, didn't get into it, but I don't see why that logic doesn't extend to other statutes, including ones that regulate individuals. If a, if a rule is ambiguous, why is it that the agency gets to invent, uh, invent its, its standard rather than, uh, rather than having the rule, you know, fall because it's too ambiguous? Yeah, I, 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 I think, I think there is that. Although, um, I guess what the, what the other side would say is that, hey, they're, they're allowed to fill gaps that Congress has given them that power, but and there's no independent sovereignty on the other side facing them like there is with the state. I think that's the argument. Yeah, and I, and I think that argument gets only so far because it, I think it depends on whether there's already a, a pre-existing clear statement requirement. And for the spending condition, there is a pre-existing spending clause requirement. And as, as uh, some of our listeners might know, there's also a pre-existing clear statement requirement for criminal liability. You can't have ambiguous criminal law. Uh, and so that in our, in our bump stock case was one of the reasons why the Fifth Circuit uh, said, well, the agency doesn't get to come in and invent its own you know, definition of what a criminal liability looks like. Yep. And and so in this case, uh, once again, the states have have uh, states, attorney generals and solicitor generals and all these people have uh, defended uh, state power here that the senators didn't defend um, and that the Congress didn't defend. And uh, I, I think I think it's the correct outcome because it would it would really it would have allowed the federal government to direct uh, the states to do anything at all if you take federal money. 
And that, I mean, even even how you spend your budget, how you raise your taxes and how you spend your budget is the core, the core of the state sovereignty. Um, and, and that this would really threaten that. That's certainly an, an alternative ground that we advanced in our, our brief, which the court didn't get to because it found it to be unconstitutionally vague. But if you think about it, the federal taxation power is vast. What the federal government can do, and in fact, it does this, is to enact very high rates on the, on the citizens and businesses of each state. Takes that money, remits part of the money back to the states and say, you know, we, we, we're buying your uh, acquiescence to whatever we want, including, you know, control over your own tax policy with money that we took from your own citizens. All right. Well, thank you for being with us, Shang. That music means it's time you, to John. go. Appreciate it. <laughs>